G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. At the time, I was in the honours year at university and I was under the... I had a professor there who decided he was going to put the blowtorch on me. He was a very cynical atheist. And for a whole year in his course, he he, he put the blowtorch on me. But I thank God for him because he made me really argue my faith as best I could. And it put some muscle into my faith. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, today we have part two of our conversation with the Outback historian, Paul Rowe, who's the author of the book, Tell Me Another, a storyteller's search for Australia's lost faith. Paul joins us once again to share more of his life journey and to share more stories related to Australia's spiritual heritage. Once again, Paul is joining us from his home in Dubbo in New South Wales, and he's chatting with Eric Scatterbo. Welcome back to the program, Paul Rowe. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. Glad to have you on once again. And I believe I neglected to ask you, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in the Poplars Hospital in Sydney at Epping. And uh, my son was born there as well. And uh, I told him to look, uh, if you look carefully on the cottage, see, I scratched my initials there in <laughs> 1949. And <laughs> so we shared the same hospital, you see. Now that sounds like a different yeah. type of story. Maybe a well, fairy tale. yeah, I have been known to, yeah, yeah. Well, I actually did, one time I did win a yarn spinning competition. Oh, did you? Australian yarn spinning champion, yeah, briefly, yeah. So you came from a Christian family? Yeah, yeah, mum and dad, uh, yeah, dad, well, post-war they built, like a lot of people did, dad built their own house on weekends, and he also at the same time was building a little gospel hall, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that was sort of our life, those two pivots. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did lots of stuff, boys clubs and Sunday school and all that sort of thing. That was life. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was our community, which was pretty rich, really. They were just humble, simple people who loved God, loved the Bible, and that was my incubator, if you like. And how did you become a Christian, personally? Well, through a storyteller. Okay, well, that's appropriate, yeah. And radio, because uh, we used to listen to radio before television. Glad to hear that. And... uh, on Sunday afternoons, there was a storyteller used to come on. His name was Dr. Paul White, mm-hmm. and he, he was called the Jungle Doctor. And he told stories of his life in Africa, and he he turned them into fables, uh, mm-hmm. little stories about monkeys and elephants and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, because he, he, like me, he, he sort of groaned about the poor efforts that were made to tell the Bible's story, really live the Bible story. Mm-hmm. So he brought them vividly alive, and I was sitting there one Sunday afternoon listening to the, one of these stories, and that night, just on my own, I decided, yep, I, I need to invite Jesus into my life and make him my Lord, and uh, that was a pretty significant turning point, and it was through mm-hmm. a storyteller. And how old were you at that time? Oh, about eight, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so last time we heard how stories and 
in particular Bible stories, played a large part in your life and why you're so passionate about the Bible stories. And we're going to pick up this story you left off right before you were about to go to university. What were you going to study there? Well, I hit university at the end of the 1960s, and Mm -hmm. uh, I think you may remember, or you may have heard, Eric, uh, (laughs) it was the hippie era. Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, I was born in 65, so I caught a little bit of that. The end of it, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, there was a great upheaval. I mean, Mm -hmm. and the university students of the world sort of were really talking to each other, and they were saying, we're going to change the world, you know, Mm -hmm. Students for a Democratic Society, I think, was the big thing. So there were big rallies. There was anti-Vietnam marches. There was mm-hmm. yep. anti-apartheid marches. There was all sorts of stuff and a very strong sense. I mean, the Beatles and Bob Dylan and all oh, those yeah. guys were yeah. singing about change, you know, mm-hmm. and we were going to change the world. And mm-hmm. in very many ways we did, not necessarily for good. Um, but I think there's a lot of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and yeah. I think the church was one of the babies that got thrown out for mm-hmm. a lot of young people because mm-hmm. it seemed fusty and old and a bit dated and was sort of trying to tell you what to do when the hippie world <laughs> was yeah. about free love. and yeah. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. No, and we're just going to live free and, you know, it's going to be beautiful. and Yeah. Uh, if we only just get rid of all these restrictions on us, then life would be perfect. Well, 50 years down the track, uh, that hasn't definitely has not worked. That didn't uh, work out, no. We did a lot of damage as well, So sadly. So I hit university, and that was a severe test on my, I suppose you'd say, it was sort of like primary school religion I'd grown up with as a kid. Mm-hmm. When you hit tertiary level atheism it's pretty ferocious you know and i wasn't really prepared for it i didn't have academic answers for Mm -hmm. can you trust the bible do you know that you know where did it come from did jesus really live and all those kind of questions Mm -hmm. we got hit with and so i staggered and most of my friends were pagans and uh happily pagan (laughs) (laughs) testing drugs and sex and rock and roll And uh, that was all pretty heady stuff for students, young students. And fortunately, uh, somewhere about a couple of years into my uh, time at university studying history and English, um, I was staggering, but I met a man uh, and his wife who'd been with Campus Crusade in England. And um, he came from an atheist background in Yakandanda in Australia. He was a dairy farmer, so he was a very hard-headed sort of practical man engineer, did sociology and anthropology, became a Christian sort of in his 20s through seeing the logic of the faith. He saw Mm -hmm. that the story actually fitted the glove, you know, that Mm -hmm. it answered the questions best. Mm -hmm. And if it was true, well, his as an engineer, would he say, well, if it's true, then you've got to do it. So he didn't necessarily fit easily into church moulds because he struggled to find what, when he read the New Testament, he couldn't quite see how the New Testament related to some of the church behaviour he saw. But he did persevere, and he went as a Wycliffe Bible translator to Mexico, um, then went with Campus Crusade to England, which is an American-based movement, as you know, Mm -hmm. sort of active movement. And he was a very, very good debater on, on campus. He loved getting up and sort of debating all the different groups on campus. And became very skilled at it and was part of a revival that happened in uh, Brighton in England at Sussex University there. Came back to Australia to help his brother build a dairy farm out of Burke 
and um, that's when I met him. And mm-hmm. he answered lots of the questions nobody had been able to answer for me mm-hmm. about the apologetics, if you like, or the the reason side of faith. So he was telling me another story, if you like, a, the kind of story I needed to hear at university that was, wasn't just emotional, but it was yeah. actually wrestling with fact, you know, and so that was very helpful to me. It sounds like you've gone from kind of the, the children's stories to now the adult stories, so to speak, would you say? Um, yes and no, because, um, I mean, <laughs> well, we call them children's stories, but when you look at them, I mean, they are pretty bloodthirsty stories, some of them, and hmm. the Bible is full of not fluffy stories. Well, David and Goliath, I mean, Goliath gets killed. I mean, that's pretty... Well, brutal, actually. Yeah, brutal, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the Bible is full of dysfunctional families mm-hmm. and people who yeah. fail comprehensively and selfishness and greed and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff they yeah. struggle with and have heroic moments, you know. So mm-hmm. sometimes I think we've airbrushed the Bible to make it, you know, once upon a time sort mm-hmm. of feel and like fairyland, but it wasn't fairyland by any means. Yeah, that's a good point. It was very, very grounded, mm-hmm. very tough. Mm-hmm. And you had to be a real tough person to believe because you were under the pump. And have a strong faith to get through the challenges. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And some of them, those young guys, like the guys who stood up to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, um, the question I asked myself was, well, who taught them? Who taught those young men to stand up to the most ferocious, powerful man in the world mm. under threat of being thrown into a furnace? Well, that's pretty tough, you know, so... We undersell the stories when we call them children's stories. Those stories told to children, but they were to help them become mature and strong, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't divide it up quite like that, Eric. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, but I understand what you mean. I think I was, I was the, the apologetic sort of things, mm-hmm. uh, the reasons for the faith, tough-mindedness. That's what Laurie helped me to do. And at the time, I was uh, in the honours year at university and I was under the, I had a professor there who decided he was going to put the blowtorch on me. He was a very cynical atheist. Hmm. And for a whole year in his course, he, he, he put the blowtorch on me. But I thank God for him because he made me really argue my faith as best I could. Hmm. And it put some muscle into yeah. my faith and it made my stories tested. Well, I mean, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. So it sounds like he was really sharpening you. Exactly. And mm-hmm. and they were tested stories. And so when I came out the other end, I felt like, yeah, my dad was a metallurgist and he used to tell me stories about the way he tested pouring steel. Mm-hmm. Once it's poured and cooled, then you put it under stress to see whether it's strong enough. And if it mm-hmm. snaps, well, you put it back in the furnace. Yeah. And that's a bit how it was, you know. So you were in the furnace. Well, I was, yeah, and and, and on campus, you know, mm-hmm. we just, we're out talking to people about our faith and to all sorts of people from every background, mm-hmm. and it was really good, you know, Laurie yeah. helped me that way. He didn't just talk about it, but he actually took me with him. Mm-hmm. He said, come with me, and we'll go and talk to people about Jesus and see whether it stands the test, mm-hmm. and that, I think, was a, a great step forward for me to have a mentor who loved the story tested the story and helped me go through my testing of the story so that when I came out the other end of university, I felt like I had a fairly robust faith that could answer Mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm.
You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is once again chatting with the Outback historian, Paul Rowe, and hearing his life journey. We'll hear more of Paul's story, including how he began teaching at a Christian kibbutz in New South Wales. All that and more is coming up when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, our guest once again is the Outback historian, Paul Rowe. Paul is the author of the book, Tell Me Another, A Storyteller's Search for Australia's Lost Faith. Now, here's more of the storyteller telling his story to Eric Scatterbo. And then you got involved in teaching high school boys. How did that come about? <laughs> well, well, you're taking on a teacher's scholarship, so you, were, but you had to work your scholarship off, but... I'm glad I did. I was offered to go on and do more academic study, but I, I decided I'd go to get into the high school world. And I'll tell you one of the, the reasons why, Eric. I think I was being invited by the dean of the faculty, who was the man who really attacked me. And at the time, I was also being mentored by Laurie. And when I watched that man, who was very high up in the university and he had all these uh, accolades and degrees and things. But when I watched him at staff parties with students, I'd see him, he became crude and rude and that sort of thing. And then I thought about my friend Laurie who was mentoring me with such strength and character and I thought, which who would I choose to be my mentor? You know, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a very clear decision for me and I thought, no, I, yeah. I don't want to go that way. The academic world just seemed to be... I don't know, it was fraught with lots of pride and arrogance mm. and sort of one-upsmanship and that sort of thing, and mm. it just wasn't appealing to me. But plunging into the <laughs> into the high school world where boys don't, um, you know, <laughs> they don't hold back testing you out either. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of fun, and mm. uh, I loved being in amongst those boys, and I threw the challenge at them. I said, well, boys, you know, senior boys, your decision about what history means is the most important decision in your life. <laughs> and they'd all look at me and go, yeah, right, whatever. And I said, no, no, think about it. We're talking about the meaning and purpose of everything. Mm-hmm. And, and history is a track record of the human race. Where are we all going? Mm-hmm. So that opened up a really good, healthy discussions with, you know, I debated some of the boys and we'd go to their homes. And, yeah, it was fun. And I saw some young men come to faith and, and go on. So it was a good testing for me, Eric. I think mm. it took me out of the academic world into the rough and tumble of a boys' school, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you had to be pretty fair dinkum. So that was good for me, and oh, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. So then you went from that to teaching in a kibbutz at Burke. How did that come about? Well, yeah. Well, Laurie and, and, and I exactly were what is a kibbutz for people who aren't familiar? Okay, I'll go back and. Uh, while I was teaching in Sydney, we were involved in what became quite a widespread movement amongst our churches, uh, where we saw hundreds of young people really get excited about their faith, about mm-hmm. sharing their faith, about doing these apologetic seminars, uh, running cell groups. We had big meetings where we had rock bands and all sorts of stuff. Wow. 
And uh, I was an aging, I am an aging rock and roller now. <laughs> I used to play in bands and things. So uh, it was fun. You know, we did, went into the streets and we did all sorts of stuff. But there came a point where uh, we could see that you could sort of do so much on a weekend camp or a cell group or something. But if we really wanted to get these stories deeply embedded in, in these young people, like to take it from to make them life deep. Uh, yeah. It needed more. And Laurie's background in sociology and anthropology, it, it made him think a lot about this. And he said, you know, Jesus took 12 men with him and he said, walk with me and just be with me and watch mm-hmm. what I do. And yeah. that's what Laurie did for me. And mm-hmm. we decided, okay, what we need is a place where, not a Bible school so much, but a, a place like a farm. He grew up on a farm. He said, well, mm-hmm. if farms teach you reality. You know, if you if you don't water it, it don't grow. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't yeah. go out there and chip the weeds, you're dead in the water. So there was something grounding about being on a farm mm-hmm. and growing stuff for yourself and being eyeball to eyeball with the forces of nature like mm-hmm. droughts and floods and whatever that taught you a lot of things that you couldn't learn any other way. So mm-hmm. we our classroom became not just an old schoolhouse at Burke there that we used, but the whole farm was the schoolhouse. Mm. You know, it, yeah. that was where we learned together on the farm. So it was half a day teaching, half a day working to pay for things. It didn't cost them to come. You didn't even have to necessarily be a Christian to come. But if you really mm. wanted to know if you were seeking, then you could come. And we had people from every background. There weren't academic qualifications needed so we had uh, we had people who had no qualifications we had people who were studying medicine so we had them all in there together <laughs> and we it was a bit like Laurie used to say it's a bit like being thrown into a tumbler with all these rough rocks and we turned turn it on we all rumble around together and knock the edges <laughs> off each other and polish them up well hopefully that's what happens <laughs> oh yeah absolutely well definitely and the thing was the staff were in there as well like mm. we lived with the students they mm watched our families. They watched me handle things when the wheels fell off. Mm. Did Paul lose it? You know, how was his faith then when it wasn't going smoothly? And uh, I think that's that's a tough way to teach, but it's the best way to teach because that's what Jesus said, come with me and watch me. So that was our style. And over the next 30 years in Burke, we had – thousands of students come from all over the world to to live in Burke. Mm. I mean, seriously, Eric, when I, I thought about going to Burke, I thought I came from Sydney and I thought, can any good thing come out of Burke? You know, it's a bit <laughs> like Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Seriously? Yeah, yeah hick, hick town up in the scrub, you know. But there were things we learned there in that rough environment uh, that we could never have learned any other way. There were powerful lessons and mm. so that's what we did. We started Cornerstone Community out there and then we spread to other places like Broken Hill and up into Emerald in Queensland and Dolby and uh, around New South Wales into Canoundra and mm. Swan Hill eventually and so on. And we had um, these teaching centres that were self-supporting and mm-hmm. we would study together, live together in community and prepare for mission. And then we sent teams out into country towns, probably over 100 country towns around the back country of three or four states where people never sent any mission teams, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they were neglected, really. Yeah. And uh, we, we served those towns with rough and ready young people who went there and 
lived there for a year or more and ran stuff for kids. Do these uh, centers continue to today? Well, in a very diminished or not, they've changed shape. Mm. Uh, running the big apparatus that we had, like Burke became a very big apparatus. Um, uh, the farmers that helped us get started there were Americans and they had uh, it grew the cotton industry there. So we were living on a farm that was, you know, uh, growing 12, 15, 20,000 acres of cotton. And uh, so it was a very big operation and the students would work as workers on the farm and those farmers were very generous in hosting us there and became part of us as well and other places we did farming but we had a lot of businesses we ran as well so it was a very strenuous operation and demanded a great deal of of us all Mm. Uh, we lived on the common purse we didn't uh, we didn't make money out of it Mm. but it was a great ride so for nearly 35 years we did that then the whole educational world changed and I can't go into, it's a long story there, but things did change and we're now operating more in embedded communities who disciple young people where they are. So mm-hmm. that's a short answer to that question. Well, okay. Now you referred to your time at Burke as your apprenticeship. What do you mean by that? Well, you go, you, you'd study history at university and you sit in lecture theatres and you listen to People lecture you on things and you read lots of stuff and write mm-hmm. lots of stuff, write a thesis and all that sort of things. And they gave me the tools of being a detective, you know, the forensic side of you know, tracing down information and sitting down with, like, in the, the Jewish people to find out the story of what happened in Israel. Mm-hmm. But when I went to Burke, um, it was a lot different because uh, I got involved with a local radio station, says mm-hmm. Radio Again. It was a public yep. access station. Yeah, good on you. They asked me to interview all. They, they asked me to interview old-timers for yeah. the radio. So I thought, oh, okay. So I started interviewing these people. Now, it was amazing because I felt, I began to realise, wow, I'm sitting here talking to these, like those First World War servicemen. I'm mm-hmm. sitting there yeah. with old Smithy. He's 96 years old. He was in the Camel Corps. And we're sitting out at his house on Bogai Bend on the Darling River there. And I've got the tape recorder going and uh, he starts telling his story. You know? And uh, he says, well, I was 17 when I went to the war. And in the first week, I was in three bayonet charges. You just had to run and go ballistic. And as he's telling me this, he begins to shake and then weep, like tears pouring wow. down his face. And this is 80 years later. You know, mm-hmm. he's just shaking. You know, he's yeah. there. In that battle, that kid running up a hill with a bayonet, <laughs> stabbing people hmm. three times in a week, you know, well, uh, sitting there thinking, wow, um, this is this is not academic history. This yeah. is real history. This is kind yeah. of grassroots. I'm, hmm. I'm sitting here listening. And in a way, Eric, this man is giving me a sacred trust. He is handing me his life story and he's hmm. speaking from his heart. You know, yeah. this wasn't in a textbook. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm taping this stuff. And then I'd sit in a studio and I'd listen to it and I'd edit it down. I'd put sound effects and all that sort of stuff in. And as an academic, I could put a bit of a framework on it mm-hmm. and, and explain the context and then broadcast it to a very big area. My Berkshire was as big as Denmark and about 5,000 people and two million kangaroos out there. <laughs> but I felt like they were hearing their stories for the first time as well. You know, mm. that 
uh, they'd never had anybody tell them their stories en masse like this. So I did about 100 of those interviews. And I realised, you know, I was being given a sacred trust by mm-hmm. these people, you know, mm-hmm. that I could take their story and I had the responsibility to tell that story and relay it with dignity, you know, to give... Well, like we were saying last time we talked, that everybody's story matters, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no matter how small that little mm-hmm. story is, it's a molecule of story that God is putting into his big story mm-hmm. And it matters, you know, what happened there, the courage of those men who put their lives on the line to do the things they did. You know, you can argue all the back the story and whether it was worthwhile and all that sort of thing, but you can't deny the courage and mm-hmm. the love that those men had for each other and mm-hmm. all those kind of things. They're powerful stories. And I learned through telling the little story, you can actually developing a window into the big story. And if you tell those little stories well and put them together, you're helping people enter into the big story and answer some of the big questions mm-hmm. that they have. So that was my apprenticeship, Eric, like mm-hmm. sitting with these people, listening to them. And one thing I would say here, that the manager of the station was a Christian guy, and he, he said to me after a while, he said, you know, Paul, I think you've had more acceptance in this remote region that we live in by doing these historical stories, listening to these people, than you have just doing religious programs. And that was a that jolted me awake and I thought, that's interesting. And I realized one of the the downsides I think of Christians Christians has been that we sort of ride into town and say, All right, everybody shut up, sit down and listen. We've got the answer. You know. Mm. And, and it's rude, you know, and it's mm. insensitive and it's blockheaded mm. because we haven't bothered to stop and listen to their story mm. and listen to what's happened in their lives mm-hmm. and hear their heart music mm-hmm. and then tune the story of Jesus to their story. And I think that was something I had to learn. So that was my apprenticeship. Well, that was part two of Eric Scadabo's conversation with Paul Rowe, who's known as the Australian Outback Historian. But Paul's not done yet. He has many, many, many more stories to tell, including more of his own. But seriously, it's great to hear the passion in Paul's voice as he talks about the great need for Australians to learn about their spiritual heritage. And there's so many good stories to tell. We invite you back next time to hear some more of them. Also, if you want to read some Australian stories, you can go to Paul's website. It's theoutbackhistorian.com.au. That's theoutbackhistorian.com.au. On Paul's website, it says, Come on an unforgettable journey into Australia's past with Paul as he follows the footprints of the master storyteller and uncovers unknown treasures of the nation. Once again, Paul's website is theoutbackhistorian.com.au. Well, thanks for joining us for part two of Paul Rowe's story. And until next time, when we'll hear part three, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. The footprints of Jesus are all over this country. We're just not seeing them. And we need interpreters who are going to say, listen, you love the Far West Children's Scheme. You love the Flying Doctor Service. Well, why aren't we allowed to say, you know, Jesus Christ was the one behind this idea, that John Flynn would not have done that. No Jesus, no Flying Doctor Service. 
Paul Rowe is the author of Tell Me Another, a storyteller's search for Australia's lost faith. He joins us once again to share more of his life journey and about the importance of preserving Australia's spiritual heritage. That's Paul Rowe, the Outback Historian, next time. The Story. Just another way vision is helping you look to God daily. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.